Hi, Jim the Ricky Morris here with John Hewlin with Relationships and Revenue. Hope you enjoy the podcast. This is Relationships and Revenue, the show where real answers come from real discussions about what holds men back in their relationships at home and in business. A better bottom line at work means improving life at home. This show is all about helping you become a better entrepreneur and a better man. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. I am your host, John Hewlin. So glad you decided to join us today. And as you heard in the intro, I have the one and only Jim the Rookie Morris. Jim, how are you today? Great, John. Thank you. You bet. So glad you decided to spend some time with us. Now, folks, if you don't know who Jim is, first of all, I would be shocked if you didn't. But if you didn't, let me do the easy way, and I'll get into some of the other things, some other ways to identify Jim. The first one is he is the subject matter of the Disney movie, The Rookie, which came out in, I believe, 2002. Is that right, Jim? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I can say this. I and my children have enjoyed watching that numerous times. So uh, we've become very familiar with that portion of your story. And so, folks, if you haven't seen that movie, first of all, you need to see it. Second thing is be sure to watch it with your kids. You know, it's I don't necessarily recommend watching movies with your kids anymore. I used to because you thought you could be okay doing that, but that is one you should watch with your children. There's a lot of really good things in there, a lot of positive things to really help your family do things. That's an aside, not really what I was intending to talk about, but we're definitely talking about that. But Jim's also a speaker. He has traveled all over the world, talking to all different kinds of groups. Now, Jim, this is just a smattering. I know I'm not even close to all of them. Wells Fargo, BP, Uline, Nissan, and of course, all different types of colleges out there, Thrivent Financial, the Salvation Army, and many, many more organizations I know you've spoken with. Oh, and by the way, he's a former major league picture. So for those of you who are seeing this on YouTube, you can see that little jersey behind him. His jersey, he played for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. That's right. He was, a, for them, a relief pitcher. So, so many cool things. But Jim, you have a few other titles I suspect you hold most dear, and that would be husband, father, and now grandfather. Absolutely. Fixing to be grandpa the second time in November. So we're excited for that. Very exciting. All right. So folks, I forgot to mention one other thing. Jim's also an author, a multi-time author, by the way, but his most recent book is right here in my hot little hands called Dream Makers. Now the subtitle, I don't have that memorized, so I have to look at it. It says, surround yourself with the best to be your best. So I've started reading this book. This is one that I highly recommend, and I will go ahead and include this here. And that is this. After you hear this particular podcast, if you're interested, the first person to do this is going to get a signed copy of Jim's book because I have an extra one. I ordered it already and got it. So the first person who takes their phone out, like so, does a screenshot of this particular podcast episode tags Jim and me both in it. If you do, that first person is going to get that signed copy. 
So super excited to be able to share that with all of you. All right, Jim. So take us back a little bit in time here. Just, we want to know more about you and more about your story and what makes it so compelling to the point where these large organizations are bringing you in to talk. So give us some of those whys behind the scenes. I think companies are always looking for a leg up or even universities or even schools. Uh, I've talked to teachers and, and students alike, and the questions differ, but the gist doesn't. They want to know how you overcome and persevere through things that other people can't seem to overcome and persevere through. And I've made enough mistakes in my life and had enough hard hits that I've had to sway myself back and forth many times and, and either figure out how to go under, around, or through obstacles to get to be where I wanted to be. And, you know, in the end game, I would guess I wouldn't even have done it the time I did it to get to the major leagues at 35, had it not been for my faith. And mm. he, just me sitting there and going, God, I'm hard-headed. If you really want this, then you've got to lay it out there for me because I got a job in Fort Worth at a great big high school. I'm good at that. I'm successful at that. That's what I'm doing. And he went, no, you're not. And God has a sense of humor, you know, <laughs> Yeah. right when we think we have it down pat, he goes, nah, that's not the direction I was sending you in. And so all these organizations that come in, I'll tell you the speakers bureaus, when I first started, were like, you can't talk about your faith. Mm. These are secular companies. You can't talk about your faith. And for 22 years, I've talked about my faith and no one has ever said a word about it other than mm. positive things. Now, one company even had it in their contract that if you talk about your face, we will not pay you. Wow. And I did. And now that company has taken that clause out of their contract because I don't do it to offend anybody. It's my story and it, it's, it's my walk and I'm not pushing it on anybody else. I'm just telling you what's worked for me. And the times that I have really messed up in my life are the times I listen to myself instead of listening to God. So. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, I can totally relate to that. All right. So just briefly, tell us a little bit about how you went from being that high school teacher to being that relief pitcher for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Oh, goodness. On 1999, my baseball team is when the story took place. And on my way to practice to start off the year, the athletic director and head football coach pulled me aside to tell me you've taken these kids as far as you can. They'll never be successful. They're not even going to graduate from high school. Mm. The parents are losers. The kids are losers. And then he put his finger in my chest, which every adult loads when, when that happens. <laughs> he goes, you may be a great coach, but you're always going to come in last to people like me because you're too nice. I know how to step on people to get to be where I want to be. Wow. And I thought, wow. And they put you in charge of everybody, number one. Number two you're in the same exact spot I'm in. So I don't know where you think you've gotten, but you haven't gotten there yet. And I just, I was crushed. Two of my kids were around the corner where I couldn't see them. They heard it. Oh, They got to the field before I could get there. And so when the movie opens up after the nun scene, we lose the first two games by run rule, 15 to one and 15 to nothing. And mm. I, ha I didn't know what to draw upon myself. And so I sent the kids down the left field line I stood on the home plate and I just said a prayer and it was a small prayer. It's like, God, what can I tell these kids? How can I push them without breaking them? Because they're close already. Mm. How can I get these kids a dream? How can I get them 
to see and respect themselves for who and what they are and what they've been created for. Mm-hmm. And the answer was so simple that I thought, wow, I should have thought of that myself, but I'm not that smart. The answer was go down there and teach them what your grandparents taught you. And my grandparents from 15 to 18 took me into their house when my parents still lived in Florida. And it's one of the biggest saving graces in my life I've ever received because for three years under their tutelage, they taught me about life and love and happiness and laughing and faith. And they taught me how to be a good human being and a good man. And that's what I want to share with these kids that people from the outside may put different obstacles in front of your way, but you need to get those people in your life who are going to show you, you know what, anything is possible. Oh yeah. And so that's what I went down there with. I started talking to kids saying, you know what, you need to go out and live life. You can't let life live you. Don't let anybody ever dictate to you what you're going to do with yours. Mm. And I get through about 20 minutes of my grandfather's teachings over three years and and my 18-year-old catcher looks at me and goes, what about your dreams? I said, my dream is to watch you guys be successful in the classroom, on the field, graduate, and then do whatever it is you want to. If you want to go to college, go to college. Be the best person you can be. If you want to go to a trade school, go there. If you want to work in the oil field, which West Texas is known for, mm-hmm. do that. But give yourself options. And he goes, that's fine. We love you too, but we think you still want to play baseball. And I said, uh, no, sir, I want to stay married. Thank you very much. <laughs> At 35, I've already had nine surgeries. I weigh 260 pounds. I look like a scout, not a player. And these kids are going, hey, you could play again. We can't even hit you. And I said, because you can't hit. And <laughs> back and forth. And that's that was the relationship we had because early on in my life, I'd been screamed at, yelled at, and cursed at by everybody who came into my life. Mm. And I knew that if I ever got in front of kids, I wanted to talk to, not talk at. Mm-hmm. And not talk down to, because if, when we're building relationships, there needs to be trust involved and they're not going to give you their best unless they trust you. And I forget to tell you that at 28, I had a surgery in which they cut 85% of my deltoid out and said, you'll never, ever pitch again. And early in my teens, I threw 87 or 88. Once in a while I would hit 90, but as a lefty, I had good movement, but I had no control and, and no fastball. And now these kids are going, we can't hit you. And I said, you can't hit. And so we make this bet. If they win a district championship, I'll find a tryout. This is after I had failed at it when I was supposed to be young and talented many years ago. (laughs) And they said, we win a district championship, you try out. And I said, okay. In the back of my mind, I'm going, you are old and fat. You should be getting out of baseball, not into baseball. (laughs) And your wife's going to kill you. So I did not tell her about the bet. (laughs) if the kids win i'll find a tryout i will try out somewhere and tell my kids i no one else needs to know ever on this planet that's not how it happened man i got the tryout i throw 98 next one in the rain so bad they had to hand me a brand new baseball every pitch 98 sign a contract and all because of a group of kids and when i pushed them and they pushed back we made each other better we were a team Mm. It wasn't about me anymore. If I'd have got that dream at 19, I'd have been a spoiled brat. Mm. But at 35, having learned everything there is to learn about family and kids and, and teaching and coaching, yeah, I got that second chance. When it became about we instead of me, that's when mm. it worked. Gotcha. So what was it like when you 
made your way through the miners and then had your, your big opportunity. The one that happened in Arlington, Texas, which is not, not your hometown, but I mean, as close as you were going to get being with Tampa. Well, it was my home state and my favorite ballpark. So yeah, it is close to hometown. But after I signed a contract, I, I signed a minor league contract. I took a pay cut from teaching to play minor league baseball, which is hard to do. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they sent me to rehab camp in Florida. And it is three weeks of the best diet I never want to be on again. <laughs> and he, I get there and I throw and all the front offices there and like, he's got a great arm. This is awesome. And then I get done. I'm like, okay, it's hot. It's humid here in Florida. I'm going to go shower. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. It's time to go to the left field line. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and they made me start doing sprints and running again. And I thought, I'm supposed to tell people to do sprints, not run them. <laughs> and uh, so they gave me Subway sandwiches, took away my Dr. Peppers. And for three weeks, I lost 30 pounds. And wow. And you know what? I, they sent me to meet the double A team on the road. And people go, what was it like playing with kids who were barely older than the kids you were coaching? It was in double A that I found out. I meet the Orlando Rays in Zebulon, North Carolina. I walk into the clubhouse, which is a trailer. And I'm carrying a bag. This kid looks up and he goes, hey, we got a new coach. <laughs> All right. I, I don't like you. <laughs> and so I, I come in the first night. Uh, and this is the funniest thing. I teach baseball, right? Mm -hmm. I teach kids how to pitch, how to field, how to hit, how to run, what to look for, how to be prepared. When I come into the game, after I take my warm-up pitches, before I ever throw a pitch, there's a guy on first. I come set. He jukes me. I balk. I balk him straight to second. My high school kids would have had a heyday with that. And I, I'm sitting there laughing on the mound, right? And so my catcher comes out, he goes, what are you laughing about? And then our pitching coach, Ray Searage comes out. He goes, what are you laughing about, dude? And I said, dude, I'm a coach. I'm not supposed to do that. And he starts laughing. And then the umpire comes out and he starts laughing. I'm like, this is hysterical. I, I get a double play and I strike a guy out 91, 92. And they're like, Hey, he's not crazy. He's pretty good for an old guy. <laughs> the second night, two innings, 98, 99 strike out five out of six guys. Mm. And, and that was when the question started. And that's when I realized the age difference between 19 and 35. Mm -hmm. Kids started, so you were a coach. Are you married? Yes, I am. That's what the ring means. Do you have kids? I've got three. And this kid, I don't even know. He's listening. He's like, so after each kid, you start throwing harder. I'm like, <laughs> whoa, why? Yes, I did. And wait till I have a couple more. And <laughs> The next day I'm in AAA and then for two months, I'm, I make friends with Bobby Munoz, who's been in the big leagues for years and he's trying to work his way back after Tommy John surgery. And I'm watching guys on their way up, on their way down and guys just trying to hold on to that dream. I'm getting to be a kid again at 35. Wow. And so it, it is so much fun watching the game from this position because I've been in, in the dugout or I'm one of the coaching box, boxes coaching these kids. And now instead of putting people in when I want them in, I'm being put in when the coach wants me in. <laughs> and so now I'm getting the reverse of that at this stage. And I'm like, this is a cool perspective because I'm getting to watch someone else do the thinking and make the chess moves on the chessboard. And no way I think I'm getting called up. I never made it the first time when I was young and talented. Why would it happen this time? 
Mm-hmm. We get in the playoffs against the Charlotte Knights, the White Sox AAA team at the time. And if we win this last game, we go to the AAA World Series. Mm. And it's two to one when I come in. It's two to one when Bobby comes out. Our season's over. We lose. And I'm getting, I'm packing up. Bobby lives in Dallas. I, I live in West Texas. He's going to drive me to Dallas. And then my friend's going to pick me up in Dallas and drive me home. Our bags are in his truck. And the manager comes up and he taps me on the shoulder. He said, I need to talk to you. And I looked at him and this is just me because it's how, you know, locker room guys are just different. I look at him. I said, I don't think so. He goes, why? I said, the last six guys you talked to are all crying right now. I choose not to cry. <laughs> he just goes, he just shakes his head. He goes, come on. And I follow him into his office and my head is down and I'm not sad. What I'm doing is I'm processing everything. I've now come so close to my dream because of a group of teenagers who pushed me back into it when even medical doctors said it'll never happen. Mm. And now I'm at the doorstep. That's been a pretty cool ride. It's a cool summer. Yeah. And I'm, I'm walking into the office and our big league general manager's there and he sees my face and he goes, you can smile. You're going to be in Texas tomorrow. And I don't get it. I'm like, I know Bobby and I are going there right now. <laughs> right. And he goes, no, no, the big league team is in Arlington playing the Rangers and there's a uniform waiting on you. Wow. So at 19, 20, 21, when I thought I was the world and I never went anywhere and found myself out of baseball by the time I was 24. Now, because of a group of teenagers in West Texas who nobody believes in, my dream is coming true. Mm. There's a big league uniform waiting on me. And so the next day I go to the ballpark in Arlington, they fly us there. First class. Awesome. Wow. Before I can go into the clubhouse, I have to sign my contract. Oh yeah. And so they have a table set up out in front of the doors and I sign my contract. Our guy gives me money, 10 days, meal money. Mm-hmm. And more than I made in two months teaching. And I thought, wow, I could get used to this real quick. <laughs> and sure. I walk into the clubhouse and there's Wade Boggs who just gotten his 3000th hit like a week or two before. Oh. And I'm like, automatic hall of Famer. This is so cool. This guy comes up. He's heard about the crazy science teacher for three months. He comes up, he hugs me. He goes, that is the best story I've ever heard. Well, I'm still a fan. <laughs> and I'm like. I'm like, you're Wade Boggs. You like chicken. And he laughs at me. I'm like, okay. And <laughs> hugs me, walks off. Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGriff, crime dog, I mean, Jose Canseco. Hmm. All these guys come up and congratulate me. Wow. On being a big leaguer, even though I'm 35, they knew I could do what I was there to do. And wow. Talk to everybody, go out for batting practice, get to hang out, people. Johnny Yost, the opposing manager, God rest his soul, but 150 people in the game that day that had ties to me and, and everybody's like, well, what did you think about the first time you went in? First thing I thought was there is no way I'm pitching today, man. I've thrown three days in a row in the AAA playoffs. I'm going to get to sit here and enjoy the game. And I'm sitting next to big league ball players talking about how to pitch the guys I might face. And Mm. this is cool. This is a different perspective. Yeah. My high school team comes down and, and hugs me, my kids. I get to see them for the first time in three months. Never been away from my kids other than a weekend tournament in high school. Yeah. And people who went to college with me showed up, mm. coaches showed up, had gotten school buses in the middle of the night to drive their kids to the stadium nine hours away. Wow. 
to watch the coach who had made a promise to his kids. These are people that I coached against earlier in the year. And all these kids get in and they all come down and wish me well. The people I went to college with, I knew the people who said they went to high school with me. I have no idea who they were, but (laughs) it was just a lot of fun being in that situation. And now instead of looking down at the field, I'm looking up in the stands at people. Mm -hmm. And it's something I've wanted since I was five years old. And now here I am. If I would have gotten that dream in 19, I would have taken it for granted at 35. I took everything in I possibly could. So for the first eight innings, I'm sitting there talking to these guys and we're laughing and joking. I'm watching the game, keeping up. And I'm like, there's no way they're putting me in eighth inning. They're like, warm up. They just want me to warm up in front of 40,000. That's cool. Texas in first place. That's awesome. And my favorite ballpark in my home state. Couldn't be any better than this. Mm. You're in the game. What? (laughs) All right. I opened the door from the bullpen and everybody goes, what was going through your mind? Every mistake I've ever made, every time I knew exactly what to do and how to do it, but I just couldn't get it done or I made the wrong choice. Mm. All of those thoughts flashed in front of me. And then there's baseball. There are all the colors of everybody in Texas, the blue, the red, the few Devil Ray fans there were, but popcorn smells and beer and hot dogs and leather and dirt and grass, all that goes into what baseball has meant to everybody for so many years. All of that is running through my mind at the same time and the noise it is unbelievable. And later, Roberto, my best friend in the big leagues, he goes, man, they were talking about you on the center field screen and and everybody's going crazy. I didn't know that was for me. <laughs> I thought I'm the opposing team. How could that be for me? And as I make my way into the mountain, I've heard all these athletes talk about being in the zone mm-hmm. and going, when I got in the zone, there was, I could hear nothing. It was just me and whatever it is I'm supposed to do. And as I stepped my spikes onto the dirt of the mountain, the ballpark in Arlington, I'd come to one conclusion. I would not change one thing about my journey. Mm because that was unique to me and that was my journey and that person's been through a lot and I respect that now here I am because of a group of teenage kids it's mind-blowing Larry Rothschild my manager is talking to me John Flirty my catcher is talking to me later after the game Bird goes what were you laughing about and I said what are you talking about Larry handed you the ball and said something you died laughing what he said I said I had no idea what that man said (laughs) All I could think was don't throw the ball in the backstop and don't hit the first guy you face and start a brawl. Other than that, we're good to go. Yeah, for sure. Royce Clayton is the first guy he faced as an all-star that year. He steps in. Tom Gooden was the runner at first for Texas. Very fast guy. John Flaherty, my catcher, gives me a sign for a fastball. I come set. I check on Goodwin. I throw it home. He swings through it for strike one, 95. I'm like, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Not 30 kids in the classrooms, 40,000 people in the stadium, and now I'm facing the best people on the planet. They're here for a reason. Mm. And he just swung and missed. That's cool. <laughs> and take strike two. And the movie strikes out in three pitches. In real life, he fouls a third pitch off over the first base dugout and strikes out in the fourth pitch. Mm. 
on the movie set, we tried to get the actor to foul off the ball for eight hours. And after eight hours, the director looked at me and said, you know what? You struck him out three pitches. <laughs> All right. But I strike out the first guy face and I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. He could have hit the ball nine miles and it wouldn't have made any difference to me. I was there mm -hmm. and I was there because when I pushed that group of kids, they pushed back yeah. and it wasn't me focused anymore. It was we, and my kids are watching the person who made a promise to them live out his end of the bargain. And because of that, now I get my dream and that's pretty awesome. And that's it, man. Summer 1999. Everybody I know and love was at that ball game. And later I found out that Johnny Oates was interviewed and I never saw this. I just heard about it. And they're like, so what do you think about Morris when he came in? He goes, well, I looked at my head scout and I said, do we have any scouting reports? And they said, no, the last time he played, they wrote on caves. <laughs> there you are back to baseball locker room. And just, you go with it, man. It's just fun. It's a different world. Oh, yeah. All right. So that obviously was a huge moment for you. You ended up being in the big leagues for a total of two years. Is that right? Or was it yeah. one season? It was basically, I got two years service. So it was a season and a few games. Gotcha. And then you had some more injuries and that's kind of what curtailed. Well, with the, career. with the Rays, I went to my doctor who was Dr. Job. And if you have a chance to go to Frank Job, when you hurt something, you go to Frank Job because that's who fixed you in the first place. They didn't like that. And so uh -oh. I went to him and I had a tightening. It wasn't a full timey John. Basically what he did was tighten up my medial collateral leg at my elbow. Mm. And then he watched me get back into shape. And once the race coming loose, he's the Dodgers doctor. He's like, you guys need to sign him. He's in unbelievable shape. Mm. And for 37, I'm like, that's a pretty cool compliment from the top doctor in the world on elbows. And, <laughs> and it is. So he signs me. And so in 2001, well, the, the, the winter of 2000, I go out to LA and I spend my time out there getting ready for baseball. I'm either at his clinic doing all my weight work and having the, all these doctors look at me and athletic trainers, get me back into shape and ice my elbow and do all of that stuff after you throw or I'm out at the Dodger stadium, Chavez Ravine mm. working out with guys getting ready for spring training. We're hitting, we're running, we're throwing, we're doing PFPs, something I never thought I would do again. Yeah. And I'm throwing 95, 98, man. My slider is there and in five days going from 95 to 98, I get out to Vero beach where the Dodgers still had spring training and something happened in five days and I couldn't even play catch. I'm watching this guy throw a ball at me and I'm not responding in a way hmm. in which a person who is that talented needs to be responding. I can't catch the ball hmm. and we're doing PFPs and. They're hitting a ball at me and I'm bending over the center fielders, picking it up, or they're hitting a ball too many, bend over the catchers, picking it up. I'm like, what has changed in five days? Mm -hmm. And I'm petrified. I'm like, if I throw a ball up there at 98, somebody like Stan hits it back at me, 120, what am I going to do? Yeah. I watched that kid from Oakland the other night and I'm like, I did not want to be that where I can't respond. And 
I just use my old excuse. My arm hurts. I'm going home. Mm. And over the next 15 years, over 70 surgeries, mostly nerve related. And I finally get diagnosed with CTE induced Parkinsonism, which blows into Parkinson's. And so this doctor who is the movement doctor to go to is the worst bedside manner of anybody I've ever seen in my life. And I fire him immediately. And, but before that, and I'm like, so what does that mean? CT? And he goes, you had too many concussions over 30 that we counted that I can remember. Oh, wow. And I said, how do you prove that? And he said, well, after you die, uh, will you stop right there? Not ready <laughs> to go there. Yeah. And he goes, but that's the only way right now. And even today, I think it's still that way. Mm-hmm. And he gives me medicine and it helps. I can smell, mm. I can taste. So apparently I had COVID in 2001. I never even knew it. I couldn't <laughs> smell and I couldn't taste. And I'm not making light of that for anybody other than myself. And I'm just like, okay, then what is going on? Because I would like, this is how it went for me. Mm-hmm. I would get a sinus infection, my neck would lock up, and then I would have a headache for six months. Mm -hmm. People get headaches, they're like, hey, take two Advil or four Advil and call me in four hours when you feel better. And this was six-month headaches. And then I would go away for three days and I would get a sinus infection, my neck would lock up, headache for six months. And I found out that there's this pain spectrum in Parkinson's to where that happens to people. Mm. And they have these six-month-long headaches that nobody could help. And I had some of the top doctors in the world trying to cut this pain stimulus off to where it didn't happen that way, but that's how it happened for me. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm speaking, and but I'm making all my events, but I would sleep until I went to the airport. Then I would sleep in the airport, then I would sleep on the plane, and then I would speak until I had to go speak. I would speak. I would go back to my room and sleep till I had to go back to the airport. That was my life. Wow. And it wasn't much of one but you do what you have to do when you have to do it. And pain spectrum Parkinson's for me that turned into full blown. I can't dress myself. I can't tie my tie. I can't button my buttons. My wife had to start traveling with me when our youngest was still in high school. Fortunately for us, that was the easiest kid. And she probably took care of the house her senior year better than we would take care of it. Wow. Very grown up. And that was my life, man. And now my wife's having to help me button buttons, which I never thought my elderly mom buys me a cane so I can drag my leg around the block. Oh man. With 70 surgeries out of amount of time, you're on painkillers constantly. And this is when they're just throwing opiates at oh people. My gosh. Yeah. And so I'm not abusing them. I'm taking them like I should, but it's not working. I'm still in pain. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I have a college degree. I think I will add my own concoction and add vodka to that. And the next thing I know is I don't remember the week of Christmas in 2016. And by the time I come to my senses, I'm in a rehab in Florida. And not a pretty picture for a 52-year-old man. Hmm. You're doing naked jumping jacks to see if any drugs fall out of your butt. And you picture huh. yourself at 52 doing naked jumping jacks. That is not a pretty picture. I don't care how old you are. No, I'm 51, so I get it. <laughs> and all I can do is think back to 
Seinfeld and him dating this woman who had a naked sneeze because she liked to be naked. And he goes, ooh, ooh, and that's what I thought of myself. <laughs> yeah. And, but I've got all these people praying for me and, and in the book, dream makers, I call on my girls and mm. people are offended by that in the me too movement. And you know what? They're 50 to 90, but they didn't want to be called women. They wanted to be called my girls because they're my prayer circle and mm. prayer warriors is what they were. Yeah. And they prayed for me all the way through this. And I don't detox. I'm watching everybody else get sick. It's coming out of both men. I'm like, I feel pretty, pretty good. Yeah. And, but my counselor is also a pastor and he pulls me in. He's also a big baseball fan, has mementos from every major league team that he's been to, which is every one, every stadium in his office. He pulls me in, sits me down and he goes, great movie. Dennis was awesome. It's a great story. Why are you here? Mm. And I said, I lost my way. I said, I, I wasn't trying to die, but I wasn't trying to live either. So you're telling me that, you know, that Jesus is with you all the time. I said, yes, absolutely. So he's your co-pilot. Yeah. So if Jesus is with you all the time, why is he not in charge? And for some reason, that was what I needed. Mm. And for the next three and a half weeks, I get to concentrate on this fractured person who has carried around all this rejection from childhood. Mm. You're not good enough. You'll never make it. Physical and verbal abuse from the father. The dad looking at me, holding my little brother in his arms and going, this is the one we wanted. We never wanted you. Wow. All of those fractures now of not being up to snuff. Mm-hmm. I'm getting to concentrate on, I'm not having to be a husband. I'm not having to be a dad. Mm-hmm. It's about me now. And I'm getting to not only put band-aids on, but go back in and do surgery and all that rejection. And now another second chance mm-hmm. and I'm getting to fix me. Yeah. And all the time my girls are praying. So I, I don't detox. I feel perfectly fine. I go home and it's awesome but you still have Parkinson's and you're still dragging your leg around the block. Mm. My ladies keep praying for me and you know what? They heard stuff from God. And when I was not hearing it, even though my faith was back, I still wasn't hearing it. And that didn't matter to them. Mm-hmm. And they kept praying for me. And during that period of time, the deep brain stimulator that the doctor, my neurosurgeon put in, mm-hmm. I didn't need as much electricity in my brain to help me regulate my dopamine. And so I start turning it down mm-hmm. and you have the book. So rehab chapter and people go, why did you write a book now? Well, for 20 years, people said it was a great story and it was an awesome movie. Dennis did great and he's pretty and you're not no, great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so what's happened since then? Mm-hmm. Well, since the movie a lot. Yeah. So it makes it even more Parkinson's. And now I'm the medicine, the doctor in Houston put me on, killed my stomach and it didn't mm-hmm. work anymore. So they had to put a deep brain stimulator in, which people don't know what that is. They put these electrodes in and when the doctor did it, who was an incredible neurosurgeon, he goes, 
when we did the MRI on your brain, I saw the perfect place to put the electrodes. It was lighting up like you would not believe. So absolutely had Parkinson's. Puts the electrodes in, push the battery in my chest, which when you're a speaker and you have to go to airports every day, oh my TSA loves that battery. I bet they do. <laughs> and so every time I go through, I'm having to feel myself. So the doctor, so the TSA guys can, can put this stuff on, put it in their machine and see if maybe I'm carrying a bomb in my chest. No, oh, yeah. And now I'm like, you know what? I like living. I don't want to hurt anybody. I just want to live and I have to go make a living. And this is my battery. And, and they would start giggling because after a while, it's the same guy. So you're like, you know what? We have to do this. And I'm like, okay. And you quit getting mad at it. And you just start giggling. It's my battery. Okay. Here I go. Smell my hand. And then now I'm turning that down because I don't need as much juice in my brain mm -hmm. and so chapter nine is rehab chapter 10 it's absolutely the faith chapter people go why did you write a book for business people and on entrepreneurial people mm -hmm. and people who want to get better why did you write this book with faith in it because that's part of my life and it's my story and i get to put in it what i want <laughs> and if people don't right. like it they don't have to but for me, that's what worked. So do you want to hear about that? Definitely. I'm asleep one night and I wake up because I hear this scratching. I'm not crazy because my dog, Max, hears it too. My black lab. Mm -hmm. So he and I get up. Now he is a protective type of dog. So Anne's best friend is hiding behind me. <laughs> oh, wow. As we walk around the house, his hair is raised. When we're looking around, I don't see anything. I can't find anything out of the ordinary. Mm. We go back to bed. And this time when I hear it again, he's growling. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what is going on? So it's Texas. I grab my gun because you know, you're in Texas and he's right behind me again. We go through the house. This time we go outside. I have a tin roof and I'm like, maybe somebody's on the roof or something, an animal. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Nothing. 12 hours later, exactly. I'm working out in the garage and I'm lifting, trying to get back in shape that I had lost because not only at Parkinson, but because all the pills that the doctors had given me and my own concoction vodka, not getting back into shape. And so after exercise that I would sit in my lawn chair, Max is laying by my feet and I just hear you're healed. You're healed. I think, I think my friends are screwing with me, right? <laughs> I've got the garage doors up. I go outside. We look around. Nobody's there. Mm. And all these voices of you are healed turns into one. And so I go into the house. Mm -hmm. I turn off my DVS unit completely, which you're not supposed to do. My wife had done it to me two weeks before, John. Mm. And I'd fallen over against the wall. Oh, wow. Incredibly dizzy. Like I'd drinking a bottle of vodka in two seconds. Mm. Turns it back on. I'm okay. Now I turn it off, close my eyes, spin in a circle, go back out in the garage. And 
the reason there is a feather on the front of the book is because there are feathers everywhere. Mm. Go back into the house. I pick up my battery unit that controls the juice that goes to my brain. I'm looking at it, it's off. I am perfectly fine. My wife comes out of the bedroom. She goes, what are you doing? I said, I turned off my DVSU and she said, you did what? <laughs> we tried that two weeks ago by accident and it didn't work out well. And I, I showed her, I said, I closed my eyes. I turned around in a circle for the first time in years and didn't fall over. Mm. I said, come outside, look at all the feathers. What are you talking about? I said, feathers everywhere. We go outside. There's not a feather, not one. <laughs> and I'm like, you're healed. There's feathers, angels, show your wife, not there. Mm. But I'm well. Go to my neurologist who controls the battery that goes to the electrodes in my brain. Mm -hmm. Does all the physical tests. She goes, I see nothing wrong with you. You've turned it off. You pass every test. I'm sending you back for another MRI of your brain after you drink all that nuclear fluid. Right. Right. Sends me back. Your dopamine levels are perfect. You do not have Parkinson's and that does not happen. Mm. I said, here I am. And she said, yes, you are. But all those people out there, the people who can't smell, can't taste, don't move, don't make any facial gestures, can't talk loud anymore, which I knew because every speech I did, the sound guys having to turn everything way up so they, the crowd can hear me. Yeah. Now my voice is back. And my girls who had watched a video of me speaking were like, you don't make any facial gestures anymore. And now I do. Mm. And you don't swing your arms anymore when you walk. And now you do. And all I could think back to was Seinfeld and Elaine making fun of that woman who walked with no arm movement. And I'm like, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> and now the person who sat on the couch because Parkinson's makes you want to sit still is not having to do that. Now I'm getting to walk five to seven miles. Now I'm getting to lift. John, now I can run mm. as long as I want to. Haven't been able to do that in years. A person who is almost 60 years old shouldn't be doing it. My best friend who, who helps people get well, who is a rehab specialist says, you should not run. And now I can't, he's like, whatever. <laughs> and I can do it. He said, go do what you want to do. You're going to do it anyway. But I don't get tired and I don't have to nap and I don't sit still. Hmm. And those demons that I had been dealing with my entire life, rejection, you're not good enough. It'll never happen. You had Parkinson's, you're not supposed to be able to do anything and I can do it. Mm -hmm. Healed. Love it. My girls prayed for me. Eventually I watched all for a long time. I watched everybody else receive healing and, and they're fine. And it never happened for me. And I'm like, okay, that's just not supposed to happen. I'm supposed to deal with this so I can talk about helping other people and I'm sick too. And now I'm healed. People are looking at me and even some of the people in that group and even I've lost friends, John, because people are like, I'm so glad you're healed. He's weird. We're leaving. And I'm like, wow. But you wanted me to be healed. Yeah. Right. Disappear. Mm. One of my best 
friends in the world is like, man, you look awesome. I am so happy you're healed. Goodbye. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it's not for you. It's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm not pushing it on anybody, but I'm well. And I'm well because of Jesus. I know that. Yeah. And Jesus used my girls to pray for me through all of it. So I would not lose my faith, which by the way, I once did and pretty much did because I would sit there and send my wife, Shauna and Jamie, my daughter to church while I'm sitting on the couch, drinking vodka and cranberry juice with my dog, Max. Mm. And I'm isolating myself. So my friends who I know have stuck with me would not see me and call me out mm. because if I don't see them, they can't call me out. Yeah. And so Sean and my, and my daughter are having to make excuses for me. He just does not feel good, which is not an excuse. They're just not going, he's at home getting drunk on Sunday. Yeah. I didn't think of it because that was pretty much the only thing that helped me not think about how much pain I was in and all the stuff I couldn't do anymore. Yeah. And that excuse is no longer there. I no longer drink five years. Mm. No longer take pills because the doctors don't have to prescribe them. Do you hurt? Absolutely. I've had 70 surgeries. How could you not hurt? <laughs> right. Right. But I don't have to take pills and I don't have to drink and I don't and I'm healthy. So that's a long answer. <laughs> it was a good one though. I love that. It, it gave us a much more thorough understanding of Jim, the man. Yeah. Everybody. And everybody has the problems. Yeah. yeah. Everybody goes through stuff. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about setbacks. Yeah. Okay? Cause you've had plenty of them. Yeah. So, and before we got into recording, you and I were talking about attitude. Um, some people use the term mindset now when it comes to dealing with things like setbacks. So my question to you is, what did you do? Uh, some people would say, what's your secret for dealing with setbacks that come up? Setback is just another word for I'm going to get it done a different way. When I was born, mm. you, I had asthma within 24 hours, pneumonia. Mm. Never supposed to get out of the hospital. He got out of the hospital. He's never, ever supposed to play on grass. Mm. Have my whole life. <laughs> Have a father who beats me. And what is worse than the beatings is him telling me I'm not worth SHI. Yeah. And you can finish it. Yeah. And worse every day. Mm. And which is the absolute opposite of his parents who I lived with for three years. And when I went to live with them, I thought they're going to be just like him. Why are you sending me there? Sure. They were the exact opposite. And they taught, taught me about my faith and their faith mm -hmm. at a time when faith was not popular. It's religion. Oh yeah. And you go to church here, here, and here, and you don't say a word and you say yes or no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Even if you don't agree with it, because religion is about rules. It was never my grandparents. Mm. It was about faith. It was about grace. It was about humility. It was about giving back. It was about Jesus. Yeah. About relationships. Relationships because my grandparents knew everybody. And this is cool. 
I never knew how small the world was, right? Because I'm working for my grandfather at his menswear store in the summers, and I'm watching everybody he knows come in and out from all over the country. And then one day this man walks in and I recognize him. Really? And he is one of my grandfather's best friends. He's on TV at a time when you only had three channels and we were, we were the remote control, right? Yeah. And it was Gene Autry. Oh, wow. That's cool. One of my grandfather's best friends, he would come into town, hang out with my grandfather for a week, buy suits, and then go back to California. Oh, cool. Guess who is related to Gene Autry? Dennis Quaid. Oh, wow. How cool is that? And when Dennis found out, he was like, dude, <laughs> we knew each other before we knew each other. I'm like, the world is small. Yeah, it is. And we have no idea. And we can either help and lift up people or we can hurt and tear down. We oh. can live up to the challenge or we can live down to the challenge. We can raise expectation or we can have no expectation at all. And people will live up to or down to whatever it is we want them to. Yeah, yeah they will, for sure. Um, you know, I can remember growing up as a kid. Now, my dad was not like you described. I would just call him more distant than anything. Uh, I, I can't remember a time hearing my dad tell me that he loved me. When I was growing up, my dad's way of doing that was by doing things. So if he did something for you, that was his way of saying it. You know, that this whole idea of having emotional intelligence, no, that whatever that is, my dad doesn't have it. He just doesn't. So, uh, so I can certainly relate to that. Um, I want to dig a little deeper into this whole concept of relationships, which makes sense because, you know, this podcast after all is called relationships and revenue. And so I want to know what is it that you're doing right now, Jim, to work on the relationships you hold most dear? What are you doing to improve those and how do those impact your business? First of all, I had to have, everything has to be set in stone and home. Hmm. And so I do, and it's not even doing, but it is, I do everything I can to make my wife happy. Mm. We do everything we can to keep ourselves strong. And now she had to travel with me because I was sick. And now she travels with me because she can travel with me. Yeah. And she goes to every speech. She listens every time I tell a story. <laughs> but we love each other. Yeah. And you can't be successful out of the house if you're not successful in the house. Amen. Thank you. Yes. I've been preaching that forever. Mm. And the reason that we're having issues right now, and I'm going to get in trouble because we're, we've raised a bunch of soft kids. They're soft. Bring it. Come on. They don't know how to work for it. I read an article that Tom Brady did. And just for the record, not a huge Tom Brady fan until today. And he said, with the attitude people have today, they will never be happy because they're too soft. Mm. And he said it a different way, but that's basically the gist. And we expect everything to be handed to us because we want it. Mm. And one of the examples I gave my wife is if we go about the world today and somebody goes, I want to be a major league baseball player. Well, come on down. You haven't worked at it. You're not good. You suck. 
and the team will fail because you're on it. Mm. You haven't made that a goal and work towards it and put in the time. Yes. There are a lot of people who are sitting at home who are a lot more talented than the people in the big leagues, but they did not go about their business the right way and they're out. Yes. And it's that way in every aspect of life and every business and people are going, but I want it and work for it. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice because that's what it takes. You have to be willing to put yourself on the line and go, I'm putting everything into this. And if I fail, at least I'll know that I was not supposed to do that, but I know the answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. You know, I, I make the comparison often because I hear people try to, they use these terms interchangeably. You talk about failing and failure. And to me, they're two completely different things. Failing yeah. means I'm trying something new. I didn't do it right. And I now have the opportunity to learn from it and get better. Failure, on the other hand, is a state of being. It is an active choice that I make to do nothing, to stay exactly where I am right now. That second option, I can't help somebody through that. But if somebody's willing to fail, meaning they're willing to try, I can help that person. Absolutely. When I was in high school, they put everybody, everybody's grades in the papers that were A and B students. Mm -hmm. And then that became non-copacetic. You can't do that anymore because it hurts everybody else's feelings. You know what? I was the kid who made C's in high school. Mm -hmm. It didn't hurt my feelings. I was busy doing other stuff. <laughs> Quit being soft, have some fortitude and go out and do something. Mm -hmm. And that just, that stuff gets to me. And then I went to college and found, Hey, if I concentrate on this, it's actually easy, but it takes an investment in time, mm -hmm. attitude, and you had to be willing to sacrifice. For sure. And that's, uh, unfortunately, that's an all too uncommon concept for people. This idea of sacrificing. Well, who? I learned that from my grandparents. Absolutely. I learned it from a group of teenagers in West Texas who everybody else had counted out. Mm. Who, when I pushed them, they pushed me back and we all became successful. Mm. Love that. Love that. Let's talk for a moment about pain, which again is something that I know you know well. Um, I come from this particular premise. My premise is this, our pain, first of all, is never for us. Our pain, if we take the time to work through it and get to the other side of it, it's actually for other people because it provides us opportunities to be able to help others who are in the same situation that we used to be in first and foremost, but pain, when we work through it, provides the opportunity to get to our purpose and ultimately to our platform, which clearly has happened for you. So I guess my question then for you is what are some of those pain points that have happened for you beyond what you've already shared with us that you've noticed it's like, okay, clearly this was a line of demarcation. This is something that was transformative into who I am today. You don't have enough time for that. How many times <laughs> I fail? Um, I love that. <laughs> I will just go back to my ex-wife. Okay. And um, 
everybody told her, her side of family, we should not get married. Everybody told me from my side, we should not get married, mm. but I wanted to be like my grandparents and not my parents. I'm going to make this work. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, that doesn't work. Just because you want something doesn't make it true. And if you're not wanting to put in the time and the work for it, it until mm -hmm. you work out all the past failures and quit carrying that baggage into a relationship, mm. you're not ever going to have a good relationship. That goes for marriage. That goes for friends. That goes for family, kids. Oh yeah. And Sarah, I'd never wanted kids. Mm. Right. You see, God had a sense of humor. I never wanted kids because I was afraid I would be my dad. Oh, yeah. And then the doctor put Hunter in my arms and all I could do was cry and go, who could ever touch a kid? Man? Mm -hmm. And then the person who tricked me into having kids who we had an agreement before we got married, didn't want to be the parent and I got to be the parent, but I wanted to be the parent by then. And so God in his wisdom gave me five. Yeah. <laughs> and, and more because I go around the world talking to groups, including kids groups on an international youth fellowship. I talked to a while back and pain can go a lot across a lot. We have to make sure that we don't take the pain that we've been through mm -hmm. and put it on somebody else and their expectation or what we expect out of them mm -hmm. and go, they're going to let me down. I know they are because it's happened over here. Yeah. And until we fix that pain and let it go, it's not going to work. And I've had to do that a lot. I've still got work to do. I'm not ever going to be a perfect person because that person is in heaven now. And I'm going to have to be worked on. He's going to have to work on me mm -hmm. so I can help other people. And there are so many people out there with so much pain in their lives. And all they can do is strike out and lash out. I don't want to be that. I want to be the person who brings hope enjoy and the thought of resiliency into a situation. And so you talk about pain, pain can be a lot, man. I feel it so many things. Mm -hmm. I found a lot of stuff that I'm not good at <laughs> on my way to be where I want to be. Mm -hmm. oh. There are two things we know that are absolute. We're born and we die. Yep. We come out because God wants us out. And then we go back to God at the end, that journey while he's with us the whole time is ours to do with what we want and we need not to waste it. And if I can be the person that stands up in front of an audience and goes, this is what I've done. I hope you don't do this and I hope you avoid this, mm -hmm. but I don't get up and tell people, John, you did this. I go. I did this. It did not work for me. Right. Might work for you, whatever. But people relate to that because they go, I've done that. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. And then you build a relationship out of that. Yeah. And so we have to take our pain, turn it around and find a way not to cast it out on other people. Yeah, for sure. I've been through a lot and I can't go, I know your pain because I don't. Mm-hmm. All I can do is see my pain, get past it, heal it and move forward. And I've got to do that constantly because I carry so much with me from being rejected so many times in my youth. 
and the two people who should have put boundaries around me and loved me and, and held me to my dreams were the ones tearing me away from it. Mm. And so I have to heal that part. So I don't carry it onto my kids. I don't cast that on them and I don't mm. cast my first marriage out on my wife, which by the way, I did quite a bit of right when we got married, mm. but now we've been married almost 20 years. We still, we know all our secrets from each other and we go, yeah, but it takes a willingness to admit that pain and move forward. Sure. Sure. You know, I can, I can relate to that. I am divorced. I have been divorced for 11 and a half years now. And as much as I hate it, and I do, I hate divorce with every fiber of my being. I would never wish it on anyone. To this day, if it hadn't been for my divorce, you and I wouldn't be talking today. I wouldn't have this podcast because it forced me to deal with some stuff about me that I needed to deal with in order to get healthy and whole and right for me so that I could be of benefit to anybody else. Yeah. Not the least of which, you know, are my children. So, you know, having to deal with the repercussions of that, of the divorce, you know, I still deal with that as I'm sure you have over the years, you know, having children who still, for whatever reason, think it's their fault, which of course had nothing to do with them whatsoever. But the interesting thing for me anyway, when it came to my divorce, when I went to therapy and did a lot of the hard work of figuring out things about myself, patterns I was in, self-destructive patterns, that sort of thing. Working through that, when you get to the other side, at least for me, it felt like scales fell off my eyes and I could clearly see for the first time and I could start to see friends and acquaintances and their relationships with their spouses and like, man, I see where you're going. I see where it's headed. You are headed for a train wreck and you have no idea what's coming. Yeah. You know, and when I did that with several friends, uh, like you mentioned, losing some before, although the circumstances surrounding yours still blows me away because I cannot wrap my mind around that. Um, I lost friends, first of all, over the divorce, first and foremost. But after that, I lost friends because for whatever reason, they thought I would have a listening ear so they could complain about their wives to me. Yeah. And I just got to the point where I was like, guys, look. God made it very clear to me, I'm not to be listening to that from you anymore, but if you want help to get better, I will walk through that with you. I lost five friends over that. Five of Some them. Some people just want to complain. They don't want help. Exactly. Exactly. Here's a, here's a foundational thing. And I've learned this over and over again. Broken people somehow find each other. Hmm. So broken people end up with broken people, but broken people also hurt people yeah. because they cast their brokenness out on other people. True. I can see that. Yeah. I can totally see that. They wanted you to carry their baggage is what happened. <laughs> oh yeah. And I, and I refused to do it because it, it clear, it became very clear that they weren't interested in making things better. They just, as you said, they just wanted to complain. And they wanted me to hold it for them. And I'm like, nope, that's not why I'm here. That's not my purpose. Yes. All right. So we're getting close to wrap up time here, Jim. A uh, couple quick things. What's the best way for folks to connect with you? Uh, JimTheRickyMorris.com. They will get hold of my manager who <laughs> happens to be my wife and I sleep with her. So it's all good. 
Yes. Love that. Love that. Which, by the way, folks, I did get in touch with Shauna, and she is very quick to respond to things. Very quick. It's, I was actually very impressed. So, uh, probably the nicest person on the planet. Yeah, she's she's super nice. Uh, couldn't recommend talking to anybody more than her. So, what's up next for you, Jim? I mean, I'm hopping on a plane and going to see my middle daughter in Northern California Friday. And we're going to go spend a week with her. And then we come home in September. Unless things happen, I've got a whole lot to do in September. Oh. And I'm looking forward to it. I've done several events already. People, people need to be around people. They don't need to be isolated. Isolation hurts relationships terribly. It does. And when you take away not only other people you take away the money too because you can't go out and make money that really hurts and then you yep. i just i hope that we can get back to a level of some type of normal mm -hmm. and and keep things going but yeah i've got i'm really busy in september and october gotcha. so a lot of speeches a lot of virtual and we can still add more because if you're willing to have an event i'm willing to come man all right it's been a great time. I did a Ripken deal last week and we just had fun. And I, I, I forget about things like in South Carolina and Florida where we were in one building mm -hmm. and when we walked out, we got absolutely poured on. And so we show up to the field where I spoke to all the kids and the parents, mm -hmm. everybody there is dry and they're looking at us like, where did you guys go? We're <laughs> dripping water. <laughs> like there's a wall and. Just the things you see, you know, I, this past year and a half has been about anger. It's been about division and it's mm. been about contrast. And I hope that we can get back to compassion mm -hmm. and, and I say faith. I don't want it to everybody go, oh, is there? no, have faith in relationships so we can get back to that friendship or whatever it is we're missing and not just look at people in one go. you think differently than I do. So you're gone. That's ridiculous. I'm tired of that. And the airports that we've walked around in the last three weeks, there's a lot of angry people mm. and I want to see people smile again. I want to see people take their mask off so they can smile again. <laughs> and body language that you have is a lot different in person than it is on a computer screen. And, you know, I joked about this before COVID ever hit. And I looked at my wife coming back from plane ride. We're both tired. I'm like, we need to look into that virtual stuff. And, mm -hmm. and then COVID hit and then you do it. And I'm like, okay, it's hard to read an audience when you're talking to a computer. It, yeah, and it is. It's, it's much better in person, but we have to do what we have to do when we have to do it. And right now we have to do the best we can do. Mm -hmm. And. But don't lose sight of the fact that somebody who was your friend before is not your friend now just because they think differently. We can have different opinions. We're all different. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this one last question kind of hit me. <clears throat> and I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask. And that is this. What made you decide? I mean, you had, you know, career as a baseball player and you were a teacher and then baseball again. And you got out of that. What made you decide to go into 
not the speaking business, but to become an entrepreneur, because that isn't necessarily something that most people think to do. Most people think after I get out of one career, I need to get into another career where it's kind of laid out for me. Yeah. I think I wanted to see what was out there and I didn't want to go back into a classroom. I wanted a bigger classroom. I've had people tell me that yeah. you're not in the classroom anymore, but you are, you have more students now yeah. and I want to help the most people I can. Mm-hmm. Brokenness is everywhere. And if I can help people through what I do, then I want to do that. And right now it's speaking, it's coaching. And I'm even looking into coaching speakers because I think mm. getting up and telling people what they should do is not going to work. Telling people where you've been in your story helps people a lot. Yeah. And it's, I had a guy come in from Kansas city, right? When I started doing this, my agent got him for me, he goes, he's going to be there for five days and you have to pay him this. And I brought him in I paid him that. And he was there for three hours and he goes, talk to me. And he set up his camera. And I talked and then he talked to me a little bit and he said, do it again. And so I talked again and he goes, you know, we have enough Tony Robbins in the world. You need to be you. And I can't be the best John Hewlett. I can't be the best Tony Robbins. All I can be is the best Jim Morris I can be. And the best Jim Morris I can be is the one my grandparents had for three years, watching them give back when they didn't really have the money to do it, but they did it. They found a way. Yeah. And and the, the more they found people to help, the money seemed to show up. Mm. And I think when we quit thinking about ourselves so much, we start thinking about others and how we can help. Mm-hmm. I think that's when we really take off. So whatever that niche is for somebody out there, mm-hmm. we need to find that niche. Uh, for me, it was starting Jim, the rookie Morris foundation. Mm. And I saw a group that needed to do stuff. I went into a high school that my friend who played uh, football for. And I was appalled that this school didn't even have enough baseball uniforms to field a team. Wow. And they'd get off 10 miles down the road to a group that had artificial turf field and 10 uniforms and 25 hats. And this is unfair. And then I found out the school, there was 27% of those kids were actually living with one parent. Mm -hmm. The rest of them were couch hopping. And I thought, I want to get kids off the street back in between the white lines because that is what saved me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't music and it wasn't art. It was sport. And why not do what I'm good at and not try to remake anything? Just go, you know what? This helped me. And if somebody who's good at art does that, then they can go in and help kids or help adults change their vision. Somebody good at music, they can take that. But for me, it was sport. And when I couldn't play it, I coached it and now I get to talk about it. And so why not keep teaching it that way? And so we went in and redid their fields, softball, baseball, uniforms, all the attire, they get to wear all this stuff. And all of a sudden that drew attention. So we're getting kids off the street back in, in between the white lines where we can coach kids and teach kids. And I think when you look at it that way, that's what I'm good at. Now, some people are great at looking at something go, I see a winery there. I think we should plant grapes. That's not me. I was an athlete my entire life and I want to help people that have that dream, see how far they can go. Absolutely. If I can do that, then I'm giving back and I'm the entrepreneur I want because that is what I'm good at. So why not teach that? I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm just doing what I'm good at, which I hope other people do. Oh yeah. 
And honestly, Jim, that's what great leaders do. Great leaders not only see situations that need to be remedied, but they also know how to rally other people around and raise up additional leaders at the same time, which I know that you've done that through your foundation, without a doubt. I will tell you this. My grandfather taught me, he said, don't ever ask anybody to do what you're not willing to do. Mm. He said, if you're going to tell somebody to do something, you need to be willing to do it yourself. And I watched my grandfather put that to use in his menswear store every day. Mm. And if somebody didn't do something or something that was out of place, he put it back in place. And he taught me lessons that I want people on your show to take with them in their future endeavors. You're born with your name and you die with your name. What you do within in between is a legacy you leave behind for everybody else. What type of legacy are you going to leave? Yes. And I mean, one of the most important things, and it can be, it's for secular people, but it's also for people of faith. Remember who you are and whose you are. Because it's not what you do when you know people are watching that makes you who you are. It's what you do when nobody's watching at all. That makes you who you are. And that's a sign of character. Mm. And we need character and integrity back. For sure. Love that, Jim. Love that. All right. And as our way of wrapping up on this particular show, I give our guests a final four. There are just some quick questions I ask you, just rapid fire. Uh, probably the most challenging of the questions will be the first one, just as a warning. But, uh, but I think you'll appreciate it. And here it is. Why did God create Jim? I do not know. He had a plan for me, and I'm still trying to find out what that is. And I'm doing the best not to let him down, which I can't do anyway, because he already knows what I'm going to do. Okay. That's probably one of the most honest answers I've heard so far. I appreciate that. All right. Second question. What are you doing, reading, or listening to right now that's helping you grow? I am trying to put together a, a book that goes along with dream makers and I want to help people in business, but I want, I also want to help people of faith. And so we're trying to combine the two and make it to where it doesn't offend one group while we're trying to help the other group and vice versa. Okay. And so that's what we're working on pretty much every day. Our thoughts are going into that. It is, it's a complex because there are quite opposing views in full spectrums and trying to navigate that. Sure. I could see how that might be challenging. Anything Brad Thor writes, I read, I don't know why. I, I, I love, and I think he knows way too much about espionage and I want him checked out. Okay. Is there a particular book in that really is like, Hey, this one's really good. Everything he, he gets, as soon as I go to the airport and I see it in the store, I get it. So. Okay. Brad Thor. Everything. Brad Thor. Okay. Uh, next one. It's, it's a two-parter. What do you do for fun? And what do you and Shauna do for fun oh man what do i do for fun i used to play golf <laughs> now now i lift and work out for fun i also fish and hunt um <laughs> sean and i work out and lift together um we used to play golf together but since our back surgeries our doctors advised us against that yeah i could see that and so we're trying to figure out something else and we're going to get into hiking oh. and there are some places that we want to go and we want to start doing we want to do adventures and we want to go out. I don't want to talk about life. I want to live life. And so anything we can go out and do physically, I want to do that because that's what I'm good at. Okay, cool. Digging it. 
What are you most grateful for? My wife. Love that. Love that answer. Now, I have two bonus questions that came up that I thought would be good to find out. First one is, what brings you joy? Seeing people smile. Mm. Okay. And the last one, who is investing in you right now? God is. He's got a plan for me. And to say that I know what it is, I don't. But speaking is not anything I ever would have gotten into on my own. Mm-hmm. But apparently he had a plan and I've come close to dying. I overdosed in 2016 during Christmas. And I just say, I mixed up my pills when I was drinking and I took anxiety pills along with my pain pills and then Hassel had vodka. Oh, I shouldn't even be talking to you right now. Yeah, I am. So I know he's got a plan for me mm-hmm. and I'm trying to do the best I can to live up to what he wants out of me, which it's possible to let God down, but mm-hmm. I want to do the most I can with what I have left. And if I can help people avoid some of those pitfalls, I want to. Awesome. Well, Jim, I really want to thank you for your time today. It has been an honor to have you on the show with me and to be able to share at least a portion of your story with the listeners and viewers. I know that they, as I, are better because of it. So thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, John. You know what? You asked some really good questions and I'm glad I did this podcast. Well, I appreciate that, Jim. For those of you listening and viewing, thank you so much for your time because I know you've given me the one thing that you can never get back and that is your time. It is not a renewable resource, but it is very precious, and I appreciate that. So thank you all very much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Relationships and Revenue. I'd love to get your thoughts on the show. Two ways you can do that are to give us a rate and review and or connect with me on social media. You can find me at John Hewlin. Thanks again for listening, and remember, passion gets you started, purpose keeps you going. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Bye.